Hello, everyone. I'm Rebecca. Hi, everyone. I am Tony, and uh, welcome to uh, His to Own, the podcast. Um, I, in case you all don't know me, I am one of the young adult leaders at the College of Ministry. I am currently 24, and so I'm living and working in D.C. Um, and I am Rebecca. I'm a student in the H2O ministry. I am currently a junior at Georgetown studying government and Spanish. Um, so we are um, continuing a conversation that we began in the larger ministry in September 2020 about um, race and racial justice and faith. Um and we really were interested in creating um, those spaces to have those conversations as both Christians and also as um, predominantly Asian Americans. Yeah. And so we just really want to bring you this podcast um, as a way to just kind of explore um, those things from a lot of different angles. Um, and so to that end, uh, Rebecca and I, we really want you all to be able to help us shape this podcast, you know, whether it's there's a topic you want to explore, an experience that you want to share with us, or honestly, if you literally just want to get on the mic and talk with us, we would just love to do that as well. So um, we really want you all to also help us shape this podcast as we um, kind of record different things down the line. So that being said, um, thank you so much to Teresa Kim and Andrew Lee for being willing to share with us on the very first episode. Um, for just a little bit of context, the conversation you're about to hear, we recorded um, at the very beginning of October 2020. Okay, so it does look like I'm recording. Okay, I guess we're just starting. <laughs> um, okay. Well, hi, everyone. Um, this is Rebecca. Um, I'm one of the students in H2O ministry. Um, I am here with Teresa, who is another student in H2O, and Andrew, who is one of our young adult leaders. Um, and yeah, I guess today we are talking about, um, in our first episode, um, like how our identities and experiences as um, like first or second generation um, Korean Americans specifically have shaped, um, our perceptions of like race relations and racial justice. Um, obviously like our experiences are not monolithic in any way, but, um, I think that we all have sort of interesting perspectives to share, um, and also just, um, can have a good conversation about this. Yeah, like what are some of our earliest memories, like thinking all the way back to childhood of um, conversations or experiences that we had with like our family members or other people sort of in these like affinity groups, um, specifically related to like race and or racism? Sure, I can, I can share a little bit. Uh, this is Andrew. Hello, everyone. My first time doing a podcast, so forgive me if I say stupid things. Most of this is just off the cuff, and so uh, that is my disclaimer. 
Uh, so a little background about me. I, I born and raised in Philly, uh, not West Philly, but Northern Philly. Uh, I live with my grandparents in Philly proper in a somewhat marginalized area. Um, still is actually, yeah. Any, any Philly folks, if you're tuning in, this is Cheltenham. If anyone knows, um, Frank, if you're listening, I think you'll know. And my cousin, Abby. Uh, yeah, I grew up, my parents are first generation immigrants. So I guess that makes me second generation. I think that's how it works. Uh, I, yeah, grew up in Philly. So I'm born and raised American. Uh, that's a little bit about me. Um, yeah. Oh, I didn't answer the question. <laughs> first exposure or experience of racism. It's really interesting question because I don't know if it's the first, but at least it's like the the first memory that I think of. It's really like kind of like a naive slash innocent story. But um, so in elementary school, uh, I don't know if your guys' schools were like this too, but like on your birthday, like your your usual. I mean, at, at least where I went, the mom of the person or whoever their guardian was would bring in like cupcakes for the class or whatever, like cake or something like that. But because I was li- living with my grandma and my grandpa, I mean, obviously my grandma doesn't really bake. There's no baking in Korean cuisine, um, you know, especially not desserts like that. Um, so she actually uh, made mandu, which is dumplings, <laughs> fried Korean dumplings and brought that in. And I remember every- this was for like three years, first, second, third grade. And I'm ashamed to admit, but I was, I remember feeling really embarrassed every year because like everyone else is bringing cupcakes. And here I am this, I guess I, I don't know if I identified as Asian at that age, but I knew something was different, right? Especially by the food that we eat. Um, food being a really important part of my identity as a Korean American, um, even at that young age. And it's really I said innocent and and naive earlier because like no one hated on it. Right. Like actually everyone loved it. Like all the kids loved it. The parents loved it. The teachers loved it. And so like, why did I feel like I didn't want to stand out in that way? Um, yeah, that's probably still something I'm processing and like unpacking even now, like how I generally don't like to be, like a center of attention type of thing, which is why this is weird for me even doing this podcast um, in light of that. But yeah, um, first, second, third grade, somewhere around that time, um, every year on my birthday, those were my uh, first, I think, innocent experiences of not racism, but just feeling different as a result of my race. Definitely. I think like a lot of like Asian American kids can relate to like uh like the one of the first confrontations with like oh like something about me is different like and I feel like a lot of the times like those have to do with like the food that we were eating growing up or like yeah I feel like that's a very relatable story for sure yeah and unfortunately it's not something I feel like it's not something you learn to appreciate until like you're, you're older and you can kind of acknowledge and even like just more awareness of cultural differences. And 
you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure if my cousin listens to this, she's going to tell my grandma that I said all this because they live together. So I do want to say, um, yeah, I'm so thankful for my grandmother. Like she taught me everything about Korean food growing up. And um, if I could do it all over again, I would proudly bring those dumplings in. I guess for me, okay, I should introduce myself first. So, um, hi, I'm Teresa, a sophomore in the college at Georgetown, and I'm also a second-generation immigrant. Um, both sides of my family came to the United States around the 70s, 80s, and I grew, was born and raised in Northern Virginia. And... I would say that like the area that I grew up in is a lot more diverse than a lot of other places, especially like for a suburban area, I would say. And so I don't think like I really paid attention or was very cognizant of like my race or like colorism in general. Um, until like about middle school, I guess. But I also had like similar experiences as Andrew, like like even within like my own Asian American friends, they would like point out like, oh, like our food kind of smells. So like I make sure to pack it like really tightly so that nobody like notices like during class and stuff like that. And also I think this is just like a more like, you know, blatant like experience like I remember one time like in middle school we had like lockers and there were like like several boys that would just line up along the lockers and they would just like scan everybody that passed through them and then they would just like I don't know like mimic a stereotype of like every person's race that was like a minority that would go through so I think that was a very I don't know, like harsh introduction to like the big problem here. So, yeah. That's, that's terrible. Yeah. And I was so shocked because I didn't like, I don't know, like I felt that like our community felt so safe because there were like so many different like races that I never thought that it would come out. So like, I don't know. Yeah. You know, this is a whole nother podcast, but like parenting has, I feel like has such a, probably the most important impact on how children see races. I'm not blaming those stupid boys <laughs> and their parents, but I, I don't know. I mean, that a lot of that stuff happens in the home first before it, it goes anywhere else. And that's, that's really unfortunate. Um, I'm sorry you, you had to go through that. Um, that's actually a perfect segue to, um, I guess, like speaking more specifically about, um, like our perceptions of like black Americans, the black community growing up, um, you know, how, how was that, um, yeah, like what are, do you guys have memories of like, conversations maybe you had when you were younger with like older people in your lives um you know like what were the perceptions of um black americans um i remember some of my like earliest memories of um 
like the way that my mom especially like treated or not treated but just like perceived um black americans um this was sort of a running joke like in our family that like every time we drove through um so for context we lived in like a pretty um wealthy suburb north of chicago um and sometimes we would drive through like not as nice areas, suburban areas. And then also sometimes like even into the city and like, as soon as we drive into like a predominantly black part of like Chicago, like she'd lock the doors in our car. And, um, like, you know, you can, of course, like, um, and we sort of like joked about this, like endearingly. And of course you can say that like, well, that's just like kind of like an older, like Korean, like Ajuma, like being afraid of like, you know, crime or whatever. But of course there was like an association of like blackness and like black communities with, um, that kind of criminality. So I don't know if you guys had like similar experiences, but I thought that was interesting to talk about. Yeah, this is all, I think, at least in the past couple of years, more processing my memories because a lot of it are, they're more like snapshots and not so much like video playbacks that I have. And recognizing, it's not the right word, like trying to sift through like what is, what is valid and right in those instances and what is not. And then for both of those differences, how do you like, how to understand how those even came about. So like, for example, um, after third grade, I, I, um, I moved to my, uh, live with my parents. And the reason we were separate is because I, I grew up in a private school in the beginning and because my parents worked really early. Um, our grandparents took us to school and our parents just had really late, early to late work hours. And so they just weren't able to do that. Um, but by that time, um, you know, like none of the, it's not conversations as much as it is like these one liners that just were dropped. Um, sometimes they were longer. It wasn't really a dialogue, but maybe just like, uh, you know, my parents talking, talking between themselves, but they were very like, they, they never tried. So my parents rarely showed how difficult their work was. And so for context, uh, both my parents, once they moved to America or Philly, they worked in uh, basically inner city Philly for forever. Like even now they're still working in inner city and, um, in, in a lot of different areas, they had a lot of different, um, small business owner type businesses. So like anywhere from like a deli to a grocery store, to, um, a sneaker business and, you know, anything that really caters to, um, yeah, that demographic that lives in that area. So like bodegas, um, I remember a couple of stories, uh, where at the time, I, I don't know, like I kind of thought it was like admirable or even funny. Maybe sometimes like we would laugh about it, but it's really tragic now that I think about it. Like my dad, like he got in a lot of fistfights with his customers who were pre- predominantly African-American um, just because of like the danger that they would cause, um, the, the rowdiness. Um, like there were multiple times my, my dad was held up at gunpoint. Um, like really praise, praise God that my dad is still alive right now. But I mean, my... <laughs> My dad grew up like fighting as a kid, like him in, in Korea, like he was really good at fighting. Um, I didn't inherit any of that, but yeah, so I, I, we can laugh about it, but like, it's really, um, if you look at it at face value, 
like I, I'm like extremely um what's the word like sad for my parents that they had to experience all that and then it's like in more recent history that I can even like have more mature conversations like with all those things that happened to them and that's like one of countless stories where you know how do you explain to a recipient of I mean I guess I'll just use the word victim like a victim of physical endangerment physical abuse uh harassment whatever you want to call it like how do you explain to that person like this is why that person that hurt you it, you know like that like you know what I mean like how do you explain systemic racism as the cause of the 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 person that's doing the harm to the victim my victim being the parents that was like I don't know if that made sense but like that's I, I don't know I still don't know um I hope I can continue to have that conversation with my parents but like I'm trying my best to empathize with my parents empathize with people in general but yeah it's really hard to to figure out what what's a valid line of thinking what is a edifying line of thinking to my parents uh and just in general um korean americans but yeah these thoughts are not cohesive <laughs> i should have i should have uh, uh at least jotted down a couple of notes but yeah something like that um that's i think my my as a child that was my exposure to this korean american versus uh, african-american conflicts um still kind of working through it definitely i mean i'm going to be working through it probably for the rest of my life yeah um like i resonate a lot with what you said and also if i were to like backtrack to like my first memory of like i guess anti-blackness within our family um like Ever since I was young, like, I would, like, call my grandparents pretty often, and especially my grandfather. Every time he asked me about, like, what happened at school, he would always ask, like, do you have white friends? Do you have black friends? Do you have Asian friends? And then he would always ask, like, are all of them smart? And at first, like, I didn't understand, like, why he always asked that every single time. And then when I said, yeah, like, everybody's smart, like, we're all friends, he would, like, seem to be like, oh, really? And, like, be kind of surprised. And obviously, it wasn't until, like, later when I actually took history and learned, like, U.S. history, like, why he, I guess, like, asked those questions and reacted that way. And then it wasn't until recently that, like, I found out, like, my family's more like personal um, story, like in their relationship with the black community, like similar to Andrew. Um, I know that on my dad's side, um, they immigrated first to Baltimore and like a lot of my grandparents and like great uncles and great aunts would also like have small businesses. I know that my grandmother and her sisters were seamstresses and that I believe like one uncle, like one of my dad's uncle had like a gr small grocery store or something in there, like in the city. And he also um, was hit in the head by an African-American customer 
and he nearly lost his life. And so I, I don't know, how, like similar to Andrew, like I don't know how to reconcile that with like the bigger picture that's going on. And it's not like I can like invalidate like what my parents feel or what my like grandparents feel. And especially having experienced that and like those feelings and emotions have been ingrained in them for so long, for decades. Like, like how do I, like, I don't think I could like ever unravel that for them. And yeah, it's just, it just seems so hard because it's not like I can like protest against that, you know? But, and it's not like I can say like, oh, since these like systemic injustices were so like ingrained in society for so long, we should like accept it. Cause it's not like something that you should accept, you know, like near death experience. But at the same time, like so many other like, like black and brown people have died or faced like near death experiences as well. So. Yeah, as you were talking, I'm, I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, that th- those experiences are, are definitely so relatable. And I think the trickiest part in my mind is how do you weigh, <clears throat> how do you weigh one person's hurt against another? And I guess that's it. I don't have anything additional to add to that. It's just like, that's such a difficult thing to to think about. And like, I was talking to my dad, he visited here, here in Virginia a couple of weeks ago. And, um, we were just talking about, like, you know, the recent protests and stuff. Like my parents had to close their store for, um, for a little bit when the initial protests, uh, um, right after George Floyd's murder happened, uh, they like, there was a shopping plaza right across from where their store is. And like everything there was torn down. Like the Lowe's was torn down. The bank there was destroyed. Uh, everything in that plaza was pretty much looted. Um, a lot of rioting. And um, my parents' store, thankfully, was okay. Um, my dad was saying like, like, no one wants to to damage a bodega. He didn't. He didn't call it bodega, but like a corner store, right? And um, I'm thankful for that. But like it, even my dad's view of protesting and rioting um he he uses he said it in korean i don't know if this is a a good uh interpretation of it but basically he he summed up the protests as someone spitting at someone like two floors above them um because when you spit up that high it doesn't hit that person it just falls back on you and so his his like line of thinking i think a lot of asian parents can think this way is um, you know, like we Asians, like when we immigrated to America, like we made it possible, like look at our kids and how successful they are through our hard work. So why can't this other race of group of people do the same thing? And like, honestly, from their viewpoint, like that's so valid, right? Like if they're the ones who experience or who, who put in the hard work to whatever you want to call this American dream, but really brought new opportunity for for me and my brother and like all the other second second third fourth generation immigrants then like why can't you know another group of immigrants and 
Um, obviously, that's a much longer conversation to be had, um, especially because I, I don't even fully know the answer to that, right? I could try to explain to him as best as I could, you know, the things I've been learning in this race literacy class of, you know, how deep racism goes in America. Um, it's so crazy. I mean, that, that may be for another time, but I'm just learning so much. And you know how I can't really explain that in a concise manner to my, to my parents. And, um, I'm, I hope I'll have con continued conversations with them, but yeah. Yeah. How do you weigh two hurts, two traumas, I guess you could call it and make peace with that. That was a rhetorical question, but if you have an answer to it, you know, I would love to share that with my parents. I, as you were like talking about like individual, like experiences of hurt and how do you, it almost feels like, um, like stupid to be like, no, like, like, listen, like, I like know about like systemic racism and like, or like, you know, like to our grandparents or like, you know, our, our elders, like, um, you know, like I studied this and, um, I like, um, I think a lot about the story that, um, my, like family, um, and I talked about a while back. So, um, my sister is a lot older than me. She's 13 years older than me. So like when she was growing up, sort of like her like age group and their parents were like pretty close with, um, my parents as well. So like I was a late born. So like my mom was much older than like my friend's moms. Right. Um, so my mom was really close friends with one of my sister's moms. Wait, one of my sister's friend's moms. Um, and my sister's friend, um, there were two girls in that family and their parents worked at like small businesses on the South side of Chicago, which is like, um, you know, like a predominantly black, very, um, low income part of the city. Um, and my parents would like joke about how, so these two girls, so this family lived in also like a nice suburb North of Chicago, but their parents worked in the city. And, um, at some point their parents like transferred ownership, like legally of their stores to someone else who like worked for them. So like on paper, like they were no longer the legal owners of the stores or something like that. But in exchange, like they were still taking like, um, there was like sort of an agreement that like they would like take a cut, like a huge cut of the profits, right. In cash. And so like, you know, like low key, like tax evasion, <laughs> but like, um, there, and my parents would joke about this because, um, the two girls in that family, the older girl ended up going to like UPenn and the younger girl went to Cornell and they both basically went for free because on paper, um, like, their parents classified as low income because like that income was coming to them in cash. And my parents would like joke about that because they'd say like their parents like gamed the system. Like they figured it out. They like sent both of their kids to these like incredible universities for free. And like now both of those girls, like, um, 
you know, like one of them got her MBA from Wharton and another one like went to law school and like, they're both doing so like so well for themselves. And I like now listen to that story and think about that story like all the time because I'm like, that is so like messed up. And like, that is such an example of like, I don't know, like, I think that is an example of like systemic racism, right? Because like that family had the opportunity to set up businesses in an area where a lot of like black people don't have the capital to set up their own businesses. And then they like transferred wealth out of those communities and used that wealth to send their own kids to like tutoring and like instrument lessons and like to pay property taxes and like a great neighborhood where their kids could go to good schools. And then those kids went on to like do really well for themselves. And so, I don't know, I think about that a lot. And like, I share this story because I think that like speaks to your point, Andrew, about like when a lot of our parents say like, you know, like our kids turned out so well and like we worked so hard for them to turn out that well. But I think that's like, like there were conditions that like allowed for our parents to like come here and like, quote unquote, do well and like allow us to do well. Yeah. You know, one, one difference I'm realizing with people who immigrate here versus people who are born into, you know, racial injustice. Um, one is like, you know, you made the choice to come here and you're already kind of like in a different mode of thinking and, you know, a lot of it is like survival mode, right? Like, you know, parents can't speak English. They're going to do whatever it takes to survive because that's the very sole reason they came here for quote unquote better life. So I I guess from that standpoint, it is already a biased population group, like comparing one to another. Um, Yeah, I guess that, that, yeah, that's important for me to understand and realize that um, and help my parents understand that. Um, hmm. Yeah. But then again, I'm like, you know, like that, those things don't make like those individual experiences that like your parents had any less like traumatizing or like, you know, like, I think it is true that like a lot of our parents did like, um, like make a lot of sacrifices that like were so demanding. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Also, I mean, I don't know if, how, how your guys's communication levels are with your parents, but like I suck at Korean and my dad sucks at English. So there's like already a huge barrier in terms of our like experiences and like trying to share our experiences. You know, I do the best I can. My mom's pretty good at English, but I don't, yeah, I don't know. My conversations with my dad usually go deeper, even though like, I'm like speaking the worst Korean ever, like straight up Konglish and trying to just make the conversation work. Sometimes I literally take out Google Translate to, to try to um, portray my, my thoughts and my words a little better. I think like, I guess the challenge specific to my family is that um, my parents are a little older than like most parents uh, of my friends. And so that means like my grandparents um, experienced the Japanese occupation in Korea and obviously the Korean War. And then so my parents experienced like the recession right after the Korean War. So they like 
my grandparents, like they fled from the North and they had to like leave family and from a war-torn country, like a a decade later, everybody came to the United States. And also to them, they feel like they didn't have anything pretty much. And like, obviously they couldn't speak English. They didn't have the social capital or any network. And so like, it's like, I'm not trying to argue against that, but you know, like, like it's not like something that I can compare really, but I think what they're doing is that they're comparing like what they experienced to like the injustices like that were in America. And they're saying like, oh, it's just as bad or even worse to them. So I don't know, both are so bad, but like, <laughs> you know. No, yeah. And I think you like put it really well that like you like can't, well, I should use I statements. Like I can't compare like the experience, like, because they are not comparable experiences. Um, But it's so interesting and like also so horrible that like somehow in this country, like we've like created those dynamics where like, like so much, I think of those tensions come from a place of like, um, misunderstanding like the other community. And then also saying like, you know, like, well, and I think especially for Asian Americans who say like, um, well, we've had it just as bad as you have, but we've like done something for ourselves. And then, um, a lot of like white America and like, um, conservative Americans, like, you know, that's, that is the model minority myth, right? Like, um, yeah, like this is a group of people who like pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. So like, I don't know, it gets very like, and it's, I, in my opinion, it's like totally the wrong way to look at these problems. Um, and I wish like, particularly, I think Korean Americans have a lot, um, to take responsibility for and a lot of like outreach to do and like repairing of relationships to do. Um, yeah, because I think like we could actually like achieve social change if we didn't view one another as like the enemy, like the enemy is like racism, you know, (laughs) but like, um, and that like hurts all of us in like different ways, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm realizing more and more, especially for my parents and myself as well, like there is always going to be a cost to change. Um, And for my parents, like for them to accept and be on the side of fighting for racial justice, like that comes at a cost. It may not be monetary, but, you know, it could come at a cost to their pride. It can come at a cost to like them, like undervaluing their experiences and the things they, they, they went through. Um, and you know, for anyone, right. Like, I, you know, I'm learning about this a lot that, you know, anyone in power will do whatever it takes to maintain that power. And for them to give that up for the sake of equality and equity, like that comes at their cost. Right. And like, it's, I mean, you know, I guess one could argue the socioeconomics of it, but like, it's really hard 
to bring everyone up to the highest level. It usually is like some kind of, you know, you, you, you reach some homeos, whatever stasis, whatever that word is, um, by, you know, this, this, this like disparity coming towards the middle and not the lowest moving all the way to the top. And especially for my parents, right? Like why, what do they have? Like they have literally almost no reason to seek racial equality for a group of people in their eyes have harmed them, right? Like they literally have nothing to gain, at least from like a secular standpoint. So like all the more reason, like I, it's, it's like, sometimes I feel like all I can do is really pray for them, pray for their heart to change and to pray for them to see that at the end of the day, like we're all in need of Christ. And like, that's the, like, what's the word? Great equalizer, right? Is that the right phrase? Uh, like we're all seeing the same value, precious in God's eyes. But like, without that, like how, there's literally no worldly reason for them to change. They just have nothing to gain from it, especially at this late stage in their life. And so yeah, that's really the only lens we can really, I can really tackle a conversation with my parents because there's no, like, <laughs> there's no other, 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 uh, strategy even to have that kind of conversation. And if anything, like it, it, it forces me to be humble. It, it like, it just straight up humbles me even because like, what do I know? Right. Like how, how, what do I know about my parents' experience? I'm a, they're double my age. They have way more life experience than I do. And it's foolish for me to think that I know better than, than them just because I may be more educated. Like that, it's kind of bull at, you know, at some degree. And yeah, just some thoughts going on in my mind right now. Yeah. And I think like, um, what you said about like, from a secular perspective, like, yeah, like there is no reason why any of us would like, um, give up our privileges if like, we don't believe in like ultimately the equality of all peoples, um, like in the eyes of God. And I think, honestly, I think like, Part of that, um, so I like grew up, I was born and like into um, the Korean church. And so like I grew up around um, like in a very like Korean Christian immigrant community. And I think that is something that we collectively, those are things that we collectively really idolize, like um, attainment of capital or like, you know, like accumulation of wealth and like educational attainment, you know, so like, um, especially among like Korean immigrant parents, like, and, um, yeah, just like other like socioeconomic like privileges, I guess. Um, and I think I've definitely over like the past couple of years started to unlearn a lot of the like idolatry that I think I internalized growing up, um, to say like, you know, I like, and I like talk about like my African American studies classes at Georgetown, like all the time, but that's like, because they like changed my life. Um, but even like some of the field work that I did 
in those classes, like meeting people, like you said, Andrew, who like, yeah, like technically, I guess like I have like, I am more educated than these people, but like, that is just like so unimportant sometimes because like that, like that doesn't make me any more, um, like that doesn't elevate me in like the eyes of God. And like, that's ultimately what matters. But, um, anyways, that's like, I guess that's a little like off topic, but yeah, I, um, I think that's definitely the, like, if we're going to like fight for racial equality, like for ourselves, like, what does that mean in our own lives? Like that means like giving some of our like worldly privileges up. And I think that's like important. Um, yeah. I would like also agree that like it's been really humbling as well to talk with my parents, especially like they have more problems with the white community, I feel like. And like they're like in the end, they do believe in like racial equality for everybody. But there's like a dissonance, I feel like, because they're so quick to criticize at the same time the black community, even though they're like, yeah, like white people are so oppressive and stuff like that. And at the same time, like the criticisms that they make and the like prejudices that they have, like sometimes like I catch myself too. Like, oh, like I did like once believe or like I had like a similar thought to like what like these things that I like find so repulsive. And like I realized that I really need to look back on myself and reflect on like these internalized biases that I guess I grew up in as a Korean American. So, yeah. I think it's amazing that your parents can recognize oppression like from the white community. I, I feel like if I ask my parents, like, do you even know what, <laughs> how we are oppressed I think it'd be like question mark question mark question mark I mean I probably I, I don't even really know to, to a, a lot of degrees um, the existence of oppression I had um like very briefly a conversation with okay so my dad is like um he he and my mom like immigrated here um because they both like went to grad school here. So my dad got his PhD. My mom got her master's like at the same time in the States. Um, and so because of that, he's like very fluent in English. So we've been able to have like good conversations about this. Um, and, um, my dad is like very woke by like Korean immigrant dad standards. Um, and something that we talked about was like, um, he, for a long time, like didn't buy the like racial justice stuff or, you know, the, like when black lives matter took off in 2014, like he did not support the movement. Um, and it wasn't until pretty recently that he like really came around to understand like what the movement is about. And, um, we talked about how, like, even in all of his years living here, like they've lived here for like several decades now. Like he never really like reflected on like what racism was to him. And like, you know, like he never like articulate, like took time to articulate like 
oh, this is how like I have been affected by racism in this country because he just like didn't know to like even notice it, I guess. And like, um, I thought that was so interesting because from the perspective of like an Asian American, like I, that's like all I think about sometimes, like, because I am so like attuned to that. So I don't know. I think that's like interesting. Um, yeah, I guess this like brings us to like this season in particular, like what are things that we've been learning and or unlearning? Um, because I do feel like this since like April or May, um, black lives matter as a movement has really taken off. Um, and like confronted a lot of people that I think previously were not really, you know, thinking about these things. Yeah. So I mentioned before I'm in this race literacy class held by little lights ministry, highly recommend it's, I think the second cohort or the fourth cohort, I mean, the registration is open, highly recommend just for like knowledge alone. I think it's very valuable. Um, I, I mean, it just provides structure to, to learn. Um, if, you know, it's pretty trustable material, for lack of a better word. Um, one thing I learned, and I think this really struck home, and this is completely, it's almost irrelevant to what we've been talking about, but I still feel like it's important to share. Um, one of the reasons, well, you know, fact check me, but because I may be summarizingly, summarizing incorrectly, but one of the one of the reasons American slavery was the most despicable form of slavery in the existence of the history of mankind is that like slavery in America was literally dehumanizing, not metaphorically, but like legally, people not being classified as part of the human race, right? Like there were other forms of slavery that never went to that level. And that like the the amount of how far the white population, white male land owning people went to preserve their rights and their, their wealth, their land to make it into law. You know, when you write in the constitution or, or declaration of independence that we're all equal, like you can't move forward with that while it's still treating people as slaves. And so they create laws to literally dehumanize not just African-Americans, but even Native Americans. And like the amount of like eugenics and genocide that's not talked about in history is like, it's so, there's no word for it. It's abhorrent. It's terrible. Like that we're not taught that in school and like realizing that it's like, it's more than sobering. It's really changing my outlook on, the racial injustice that exists and the amount of generational trauma that has come to pass as a result. And I don't know how I could ever relay these thoughts to my parents, but I hope that they could not necessarily like change as a result, but if they could even like, just, you know, lean on the side of empathy like that, I feel like would be, amazing. Um, and for me too, like, I, I want to better understand my parents' experience. And, um, I mean, I don't fault them for believing what they believe actually, because I feel like their views are justified based on their lifestyles, um, or based on what they've experienced. 
as unfortunate as that is. Uh, justified may not be the right word, but yeah, it, it's valid in my mind. Like the hurt is is real. And uh, I, I hope one day we can all understand like how deep rooted racism is in this country and how the racism in this country actually caused a lot of racism in the world. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. This could go on to a whole nother podcast. And I haven't been able to like dialogue about this kind of stuff with anyone other than my wife because quarantine. (laughs) But yeah, another time for that. I think for me, definitely like, I would say I was feeling pretty apathetic and like pessimistic about the entire, I guess, achieving racial equality because like even my parents who believe that like the black and brown community is like seriously oppressed and they believe that like racial equality should be achieved. They still have these like biases and like, I feel like if they like hold on to that, it just like, it has a ripple effect. I feel like it compounds like even people who just seem like our parents who don't, don't seem like outwardly racist, like those subconscious thoughts, I feel like will affect like the choices they make and like how they interact with their coworkers and stuff like that. And we like clearly know that there are people who hold even more like abhorrent thoughts and they act upon it in this country and like everywhere else too. And also thinking about like how this practice of like slavery and anti-blackness has been going on for like centuries. Like, like I feel like it's been compounded for so long, for so much that like, like, I don't know, like, like it's so hard to be hopeful about this movement. And I feel, I feel lazy and like almost negligent if I don't have hope because I feel like I'm just giving myself like a free pass to not do anything. And then like when I think about like, oh, like I'm, I'm like working for ASK and working for the CSJ and I'm trying to get more involved with like, like STAR and like trying to promote a dialogue about this. But I almost feel like I'm in a position where I'm just like analyzing this cultural movement, but not like, you know, actively working to achieve racial justice. And so, yeah, I think that's something that I have to reconcile with myself. Like, I don't know, just to be more hopeful. Yeah. Cause like at least like some progress towards the greater good is better than like giving up and like not doing anything. Yeah. I feel that it's so overwhelming. I don't even know if overwhelming is enough to, to describe. And this is just from what I know. And if that's only like a small sliver of it, like how much bigger is the actual issue and the actual steps that are needed to be made to get towards racial equality. I I mean, uh, it's like the more you learn, the more you don't know. And it's, 
it, it feels, yeah, hard to handle. But what can what else can we do but take small steps forward? I guess. I don't know if this will be included in the podcast, but if you know that 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 a uh, jellyfish story that Peter Cho always shares, or is it a jellyfish or a clam? The, uh, anyways, there why you can cut this out. Oh wait, no. Are you talking about like the like it made all the difference for that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, okay, wait. No, tell that story. I do think it's like relevant. Yeah. So I guess it's just a. Isn't uh, it an oyster? Uh, Maybe it's, I don't know. It's some sort of like. Selfish could work. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like a childhood bedtime story, I guess. A boy and his sister, and they see, I'm just going to go with jellyfish because that's what I said. They see like millions of jellyfish on the shore, and the the boy goes and picks one up and throws it back in the water. And the sister says, like, Why are you doing that? There's so many, it's not going to make any difference what you do. And the boy says, Well, it made all of all the difference for that one. And that's probably like a really good way to look at things because you, you got to take it a piece at a time. Otherwise, yeah, too much to do all in one step. Thanks, Peter Cho. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I also think that like, I do really believe that like our generation Um, and like younger generations of Asian American kids, like learning about these histories and like these issues does make a huge difference, especially when we think about like repairing relationships with between like Korean American communities and like black American communities. Like, um, yeah. So like, even if like, one of us is not going to like change like like the world um like all of the person-to-person interactions and like you know like I think a lot about um like (laughs) probably like more than like the average like 20 year old girl I just like think a lot about like my kids in the future and like I um Things like, you know, like choosing like where your kids go to school or like, um, you know, like who you want, like who I want my kids to be friends with or like where I like choose to live in the future. And like, you know, um, all of that is like affected by like systemic racism. Right. Um, but I guess like making individual choices that like, um, are different. I think that's like a great place to start. It's, you know, and I think especially like for Korean, like Asian Americans and specifically Korean Americans, um, like those choices are important, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm really glad we're having this conversation. I, I don't know if what it's going to sound like in an actual podcast. I'm a little nervous about that. I'm glad our faces aren't going to be shown. It's just audio. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is good. It, it, helps the process and I'm, I'm thankful that i got to hear your guys's experiences as well well yeah i'm really glad that like you rebecca and tony started this podcast and definitely like when i talk with my friends about like like racial injustice like we easily just like spiral into a rabbit hole of how like terrible it is and like we like we can't do anything and like yeah, just being really negative all the time. 
and although I wouldn't really call this conversation hopeful, like it's still like, I don't know. It feels more like steadfast. Like, like, you know, there's a problem, but like, like we just have to move forward. That kind of like, feel, and I feel like that's the only way like that I know now and like the best way. So. I also think that like part of how this is like a really cheesy way to put it, but like part of how the enemy quote unquote, like the enemy being like sin or like racism, um, systemic racism, or, you know, like part of how the enemy wins is like us, like feeling hopeless and like giving up on, Oh my God, this is so cheesy, but like, fighting you know the good fight (laughs) and like um no but seriously and I think like people sort of like bash on like language around like reimagining systems or like um you know like wanting to like make systemic change because they sound so like lofty and like like idealistic but that's like what we have to hope for also like I think as Christians, like, we know that that's, like, the end goal um, or, like, the the end product that, like, there is, like, um, yeah, that, like, this is not how things are supposed to be. I don't know. I personally, like, take a lot of, find a lot of, like, hope in that. Yeah, for sure. Sure. Okay, I'll, I have a closing question. Um, inspired by, I listen to Ezra Klein's podcast a lot. He's a he's one of the co-founders of Vox Media, um, so really good journalist. But um, he always like asks this question. And I think this is a good question, um, or like a version of this question um, that I think is relevant to this. What is one book and or movie? Um, and or like, yeah, any sort of like medium of art um, on like these topics that you have consumed um, that like you would recommend to others. Does that make sense? Sorry, that was like a very complicated way of asking that question. I'll be the first to admit I'm I'm not a big reader. I do watch movies. Um, Just Mercy, I thought was really really good i cried a lot in theaters um the hate you give was really good too cried a lot um and even the this is kind of corny but uh, educational resource uh there's this pbs documentary that was written on racism in america i don't know the title i will look it up while one of you guys are answering but it's it, it's so good. It's honestly so good. Um, very informative. And I feel like PBS is pretty trustable. So uh, I'm sure they did their, their fact check. So uh, I feel so bad because like, I can't really think of anything right now, but Moonlight, the movie I thought was really good. Like such a good movie. Yeah. I just, I don't know. Like, I don't, I felt I learned so much and like felt so much watching that. Definitely not because like 
I feel like I understood the black community, but it really did open my eyes to like, I guess the raw emotions that not many, like, I guess, people who are represented in mainstream media feel. So I would recommend people to watch that. And what about you? Oh, I guess I should, yeah. Okay, I didn't know if I should like share, but um, I, this is actually a documentary that Tony recommended to me that I watched called, it's called LA 92, I think. Um, and it's about the LA riots and it like focuses on the experiences of like Korean business owners in LA, um, during the riots. And I think it just like, yeah, like I had never seen some of those images or like some of the video footage before of like the interactions between the rioters um, and the protesters and like the Korean business owners, but like, man, like watching that, um, those images for the first time, I like, yeah, I, I think I like learned a lot just from like that documentary about like the amount of just like pain and like brokenness that, um, exists between like those two communities and yeah I don't know just like taught me a lot um but yeah we have a lot of work to do okay oh yeah recommendation I finally remembered that one book that I was really impressed by on no name in the streets by James Baldwin mm-hmm. I thought it was I really good yeah. yeah I read it over the summer so I wanted to share yes okay well, on this abrupt note, <laughs> um, I will stop recording. Um, actually, wait. Thanks for being here, guys. Um, yeah, thank you for hosting. Yes, of course. So we hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation with Teresa and Andrew. Yeah, and we would love to know um, what you thought about the conversation. We would love to hear uh, any of your reflections, takeaways, or if you had um, any experiences that you wanted to share. So, yes, please hit me and Rebecca up um, just with anything that you got from listening to this first podcast. Yeah. And again, thank you so much to Teresa and Andrew for being our first guests. Um, We know it was sort of a haphazard experience, but um, great conversation nonetheless. Um, And then also um, we would like to give a special shout out to Joe um, for creating the music for the podcast. Um, And then I'll also just shout out Tony for editing and Wayne for behind the scenes moral support. (laughs) 